Ladies and gentlemen, it's been 10 years since Natalie last felt the deep thirst for a James Bond. But here we go again. Timothy Dalton, is he hot? My goodness, is he. I tell you what, I wouldn't mind being any horse he rides. But enough! Of the sexual stuff in the introduction, let us begin our discussion of the living daylights. And with me, as always, is a man who no doubt fancies himself as a bit of a cello, ready to be plucked by a beautiful uh, Czech pianist. No, she's an orchestra. Oh, God, I'm so distracted. She's a cellist, Natalie, a cellist. She's a cellist. I'm so distracted by Timothy Dalton's raw sexuality, <laughs> which really surprised me. But how are you, Stu? I'm very good. I'm very good, Natalie. Just to explain why I sound a little out of breath, after this film ended, I finished watching it, I went, I've got to do some exercise for the day. And I realised that maybe it was just trying to, you know, work off some of the... I was going to say... Pent up. Like you had some energy to work off. I had some energy after watching Timothy Dalton in this film. And can I tell you, I finally get what my mum's been saying all these years. <laughs> well, do you know what? My, uh, Timothy Dalton is actually my wife's favourite Bond for that very reason. She gets a bit hot under the collar for him as well. He, he just has that effect on people. I mean, he was always fine, but maybe it's just a sign that I've matured. I'm older, I'm wiser, yeah. I'm more picky, choosy, more... That's not true, I'm not picky, choosy, but... <laughs> he is right in my wheelhouse right now, yeah, and maybe it's behind just... your uh, Daniel Craig-style himbos and uh, gone for a more classier bond. Just, you know what? It's the cleft chin. I don't, I've never been a cleft chin person before, but it works. It totally works. But before I just carry away on this podcast with rampant sexual objectification of one of... <laughs> England's great stage actors. Let me introduce our guest for this podcast. He is an educator, he's a sometime actor improviser, and he is a massive James Bond fan. Will you please welcome Christopher Spensley? Hey. Thanks, Nat. Thanks, Stu. It's really great to be here with you. Have you been enjoying the podcast series? Look at me looking for compliments. <laughs> oh, Nat, you know, you can always fish for a compliment with me. I think it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> and why did you want to pick this film, Chris? We do ask all of our guests to fess up as to their choices. For a couple of reasons. One, I really like Timothy Dalton as a Bond. I think he's actually really, really engaging, especially when he's icy cold. We'll talk a bit more about that, no doubt. But also, it's a really interesting film because it tries a lot of things. It makes a couple of really interesting, really basic storytelling blunders, but I think it hits more than it misses. I'm keen to know about the blunders because this is still kind of fresh with me, and I'm like... This is not a film I watch enough, you know? This is a belter. Mm. And maybe it's just getting on because we've had the sort of the downward spiral of the Roger Moore era where expectations were somewhat lowered. Coming and off it, of View to a Kill, Natalie, this this thing is a masterpiece. This is <laughs> oh, yeah. It's coming in hot. But I'm keen to learn more about the blunders. But, Stu, initial thoughts? My initial thoughts are, are exactly that. Coming off uh, A View to a Kill last week, this this feels like such a massive step up. It's insane. that This movie is back to basics. It's uh, a new Bond, and it's reinvigorated the whole thing. And it's not even doing anything particularly new or innovative with the actual franchise. Like, like all of the stuff that is in this movie is very Bondy. Like, like it's very it's very recognizably James Bond, almost almost in a, a very safe way. But 
it just does it so well, especially coming off the heels of A View to a Kill, which did a lot of very cliched Bond stuff itself and just did it very badly. So <laughs> to, to have this movie come racing in, I was like, oh, thank you so much. I, I was waiting for this. I do wonder how much watching the films in order has given this a boost. You know, I wonder Absolutely. if you just came to it on a random Saturday night, would you still be enthralled? I like to think I would be because mm-hmm. I surprised myself by how much I enjoyed this. It just contained a lot of fun stuff and interesting stuff, as Chris said. So, Mm. Stu, let's get started with our minute challenge. We put a minute on the clock before we started recording and wrote down as much as we could remember. Take us away, Stu, with your list. All right. Well, the very first item on my list is Timothy Dalton will shoot you in the face. And uh, I love that about his bond. Ah, yeah, yeah. Explain. <laughs> I just mean that he has he has that steely, ruthless mm. resolve. Roger Moore's Bond is a, is the the international playboy. He's the suave, sophisticated, charming Bond. And while Timothy Dalton was surprisingly charming, I I, I wasn't expecting him to be so charismatic himself. Even though like I know he is as a, as an actor, but for some reason I always thought of his Bond as a bit more of a Daniel Craig brute force guy. So he does sort of have this you know innate charm, but he is ruthless and they they write him that way and he plays him that way and it just works Mm. in a way that roger moore as we discussed in the episode with the man with the golden gun it does not work when roger moore does it it feels Mm. weird and strange Mm. and off-putting but when timothy dalton does it it just sings it's amazing and he does have that i'm I'm thinking of the sequence where he confronts pushkin in his hotel room with his mistress absolutely yeah yeah yeah. and and pushkin uh, activates his watch to signal a guy outside to come in you know security guard And Bond realises he rips his mistress's nightie off and leaves her standing there topless. Mm. So the guard walks in and is like, what? And is confounded (laughs) by this. But I love, too, too that, like, you know, he he is angry and frustrated by him doing that. He goes, that was bloody stupid. And then he hits him, right, in frustration, which I don't see Roger Moore doing that. You know what I mean? But what I mean by his treatment of women is that he uses her as a distraction and then gives her her clothes and says, go into the bathroom and lock the door. Like, this is not to do with you. You're an innocent party. So whereas Sean... Connery may have, you know, given her a backhander. Let's be, <laughs> let's be fair. There's definitely mm. that move, that tonal shift. It is the 80s now. It's 20 years later. You can't just go around slapping innocent women. And I think the way that he treats Kara, the leading lady, is really tender and very mm. sensitive. And mm. I think what I wrote on my list, not to hijack you, Stu, but how romantic this film is. Like, I feel like it's... Mm. As opposed to just sexy, it's it's genuinely a romance between Bond and Kara, and I don't know that we've seen that before. No, no it's, it's definitely, definitely not since Tracy. Well, yes! exactly, yeah. Chris, yes! that's exactly what I was going to say. In terms of the type of relationship this is, this feels like something very close to what he had with Tracy, which actually mm. makes me wonder, is this... Do you guys think, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, and we, I, I didn't think we'd get to this so quickly, but it's sort of... It's a good time to talk about it. Is this movie in canon with the movies that have come before? And it's kind of a moot point, but it's fun to talk about because do you think this Bond has been married? Yes, and I don't want to presage what you guys are going to be looking at next week, but they vaguely refer back to Tracy next time License to Kill. I Um, had forgotten about that, okay. Certainly my own personal headcanon is that this is a softish reboot, certainly a lot softer as a reboot than Casino Royale was. My headcanon sort of says everything through Connery, Lazenby Moore 
is one timeline. Dalton Brosnan is sort of half a step outside of that timeline. And then Craig is off in its own era by itself. That feels about right, because this feels for the first time like you could con- you could make the argument that this is not in canon, certainly with the Sean Connery films, for, for example. Mm. Yes, you know. and one signifier to me of that is the fact that Felix Leiter in this film is the same age as Bond. They, yes. they appear much more <laughs> contemporaries, whereas initially Felix Leiter was same age, bit older, and then as Bond mm. under Connery and more aged, Leiter was like younger. <laughs> And now they're they're very much contemporaries. Just to comment on your point about a soft reboot, Chris, according to my research, a.k.a. reading the Wikipedia page, (laughs) apparently it was proposed to be a prequel. Mm. Oh, okay. Which eventually was done with Casino Royale, and they brought back the idea of Smirsh, Death to Spies, Shmiet Shiponim, which is all through this movie, and that is Mm. from Casino Royale. Of course, Casino Royale, as we know, had Spectre in the film, it turned out to be, anyway. But in in the early novel, it was Schmerz, Schmersch, Schmersch. Why can't I say that word, (laughs) Schmersch? It sounds like something only Sean Connery is able to pronounce. Schmersch. I read a joke about Sean Connery the other day. What was it? um, Why did Sean Connery stop training his dog? Why? Because telling it to sit all the time got very messy. <laughs> <laughs> That's one you just have to run through your head. That's uh, <laughs> but, yes, so then they decided to just, I guess, as you say, do a kind of soft reboot. So you've got Q, you've got Money Penny, but a different Money Penny. You've got the same M from... Same M, and Gogol got, shows up at the end. Gogol mm. shows up, but Gogol... And so, the minister too. And the same minister, Frederick Gray, again... His extremely long uh, career as a defence minister <laughs> across multiple uh, political governments, multiple political stripes. So Gogol was supposed to be the Pushkin role. So Pushkin was invented as a role because Gotel, what's his name, Walter Gotel? Yes, he was sick. He wasn't very well. And so they had to kind of rewrite the part and make him retired to the diplomatic service. Right. Okay. And they brought in a new they brought in a new head of the KGB to you know take on the bulk of that filming work and I believe Walter Gotell this is his last film because he died in uh, well he died in 1997 but I guess he was too sick to continue he probably uh, retired yeah after this yeah exactly TV here and there but nothing strenuous and I think it's great that they changed actors because then we get to get as I put in my list the guy from the Lord of the Rings (laughs) he's great he's so good isn't he Actually, can I just say, I, I feel vindicated by this, and this is on my list, actually. I said I knew John Reese davies was in one of these yes! Bond films. I had, I, say- I had a thing back in, like, one of the early films where I was like, oh, yeah, John Reese davies is one of the, is in one of these. And uh, I think you shot me down, Natalie. I think you said I, that I was thinking of someone else. And it's like, because no, I knew he was in one of these. You've proved me right. And this just shows <laughs> I don't watch this film enough. I have not seen <laughs> this film enough. Because as soon as he appeared, I went, oh, Stu's going to be cranky at me. <laughs> He's one of those because he's British, isn't he, John Rhys Davies? He is, yeah, yeah. Welsh. But he's Welsh. Okay, so he's one of those actors who can just play a multitude of nationalities and indeed fantasy races. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. Because he was, wasn't he Moroccan or something in in Indiana Jones? Yes, yeah, I think he was. Um, yeah, he was. He was something. He was <laughs> someone who wears a fez. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> he, was, he was from Fezland, you know, that famous country. It was, oh, it we was, get a bit of Fezland in this movie too, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> certainly do. Yes, we'll talk about that. Um, um, but Stu, back to your list. I kind of hijacked it. 
No, no, that's all right. So, yeah, no, that was on my list. Uh, I knew John Reese davies was in this movie. Uh, the other, Another thing I had on my list was that cello sounds awfully good with a hole in it. I don't <laughs> think that's... I don't think you can do that. But anyway, the, I'm sure it affects the sound. Anyway, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, but I, I did love that whole sequence. Um, I love that they shoehorned a ski chase into this one. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like it, it wouldn't be a Bond film without a ski chase. But I like that they did something different with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, he's like, I'm, I'm actually quite glad we went back and got your, your cello now. Yes! That was Even, a great payoff. Yeah. It worked well. It was. It was really well set up. And you sort of wondered why, because I couldn't think, why was she so obsessed with that cello? And I thought maybe there's like spy documents in something because I couldn't remember. It's like, oh, no, it's just because it's a Stradivarius. Yeah, that's right. It's really valuable. <laughs> the other thing I had, I mean, we've kind of already talked about this, but we can probably get into it. I just said I just had written uh, Back to Basics Bond, uh, which mm. is such an amazing thing, like especially after the last few uh, Roger Moore films to sort of just take things back to just basic spy craft. Like this is a spy movie. At it's the end of the day, this, this is a spy movie. It's a Cold War movie. The, you've got the Russians mm. and, the, and the British and all working against each other and there's intrigue and, and double crosses. It's a spy movie. It's great. I love it. Because it's set against the detente, isn't it? It's it's set yeah. in the time where the Soviet power base was pulling back and it kind of builds on what Stephen Burkhoff was doing in Octopussy being mm. the the rogue Russians who were trying to well in his case he was a megalomaniacal crazy person who, yes he was a fanatic whereas I think Koskov in this is very much nakedly self-interested oh, and yeah. and and he's that very greedy you know so he's just trying to set up his old friend and all that kind of stuff but it's still works in that concept of a waning Soviet power but the potential for things to pick up again you know they say at one point if you've got spies going around they're kind of setting off the allied spies versus the Russians with the idea that they could cause trouble so it builds on that tension really nicely I thought Absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think it really did. And and like, but but just to get back to something like that is so refreshing. Again, after the last few Roger Moore films, which were basically and like I said, I, I quite like the Roger Moore era far more than a lot of people, I think. But I think after several very bloated attempts at supervillains and basically having Bond as a superhero to pair it all back again and just say, Let, let's try and just be a spy movie for once. Yes. It's very good. It's a very good move. It's something that the franchise needs to do every once in a while. Just sort of clear out everything, pair everything back, mm. knock off the barnacles and see what happens. And it's the yes. second time they've done that in the 80s, isn't it? When was the second time they've, they've, they've done it? Or the first time? Uh, for your eyes only. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. Yeah, after that, Moonraker, uh, they, they that, went back and, and sort of went yeah. back to basics. That was a far... And, and that's actually really interesting because mm -hmm. that's a far less successful version of that, I think. Yes, exactly. um, Even though that movie is quite good. I mean, and we quite liked it, but it wasn't either of our favourites, Nat. And I think... You know, this movie is is far better effort at that sort of thing than For Your Eyes Only. Because there there wasn't really the stakes. It was about that MacGuffin, the ATAR. You know, it was kind of oh, they're searching for a bit of machinery. It, it didn't quite have the stakes. The the interesting fact there was this does echo, I guess, from that. But the Christatos and Columbo old war buddies turned criminal rivals. Mm, sure. That was the interesting part there. But essentially, Christatos was just trying to sell some kit to the Russians. So it wasn't quite as interesting as this complicated opium plot. And I think maybe 
license uh, i always say license to kill and living daylights interchangeably it's a really unfortunate (laughs) (laughs) uh, consequence of them having the same the l word Mm. in there but i I think you could argue that there maybe goes a bit the other way in the living daylights there's a little bit too much plot that's one of the things that i was going to talk about with where the story does sort of falter the distraction of the drug subplot kind of dominates just as the spy stuff should be getting interesting and coming to a climax and all of a sudden it takes over the movie but we get to the end of that we get to all of the big explosions and all of the big set piece and the set piece is amazing we'll talk about that i'm sure Mm -hmm. but then both whitaker and koskov are still around Whitaker especially had nothing to do with any of that. He's completely disinterested. There's yeah. no real stakes to that final scene. But it does allow Bond to get the best pun that he has in the film because this film is, oh, very, yeah. this is very light on puns, but he mm. gets killed by a statue of Wellington onto his little battlefield of Waterloo. <laughs> and I, I saw that happen and went, Mwah! and then Pushkin walks in and Bond actually says he met his Waterloo. And I was like, wasn't needed. Wasn't needed, Bond. Just the imagery was enough. <laughs> <laughs> But then maybe people don't get that reference. I don't know. I just immediately was like chefs kissing at the TV going, oh, <laughs> the beautiful subtlety. They played that so mm. well. But then they had to kind of go, no, 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 this is a joke. I put a hat on it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. And that, that's that's the final point of my list, which is uh, this is a really great movie that has a, a bloated third act. It kind of falls apart right towards the end, which stops it from being sort of the, the top tier Bond. But exactly. it, it's very, very good. The, the stuff with, <laughs> I love these films in the 80s that, that feature uh, Afghan terrorists as uh, heroes. It's always mm. fun. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I... <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. It's I was sitting there going, oh, gosh, you know, yeah, this is 20 years later and uh, it yeah. all turns. Um... It sure does. It's funny. Rambo 3 has the exact same thing where he's he ends up fighting with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Russians. And then, unfortunately, the Taliban take over and it exactly. all goes a bit pear-shaped. <laughs> Well, let me get to my list because I wrote down many scrambled notes and then we can open it up to many discussions. I'm so excited mm. to be talking about this film. Not that I'm not always excited to be talking Bond with with my good friend Stu and a parade of interesting guest hosts, but I don't know, this one just really, mm. again, I think it's the the springboard off of you to a kill. <laughs> um, so I wrote, Timothy Dalton is hot, super hot. Sure is. I wrote, closest to Fleming Bond, question mark. Mm. Oh, in a way. He talks about how he kind of ignored Connery and Moore and I guess Lazenby, if you could even remember. <laughs> um, and he went back to the books and he very much took from the books his mm. portrayal. And what I like, what I wrote down is that there are moments where you see that he doesn't like being a spy. At one point where his contact in Bratislava is saying, I'll report you for not killing the sniper girl. And he's like, oh, tell M if you want. If he fires me, I'll thank you for it. He kind of has the knowledge that what he does is, you know, I guess, morally questionable at yeah. best. He starts the movie as a very jaded spy and this whole thing that goes down with, with him and Kara uh, sort of reinvigorates him in many ways. Like, yeah. like yeah. He, he really comes back into his own. So much chain smoking from Bond. <laughs> yes, lots of smoking <laughs> in this one. <laughs> we have not seen Bond smoking cigarettes since Sean Connery. I don't think oh, George Lazenby did. Yeah, and Roger Moore, when he did smoke, it was a stogie. It, it was a big stogie, yeah. So there he is just chain smoking. And God bless 1987. You could just still smoke up in the office. Um, No such thing as secondhand smoke. Fantastic. Those were the days. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure this movie, and certainly the movie afterward, 
finish in the credits with a disclaimer about smoking is bad for your health. Oh, really? Really? I didn't see that. That's amazing. I wonder if he smokes next film, because I don't think Brosnan does. Definitely. Brosnan smokes a cigar a little bit in Die Another Day. Oh, okay. (laughs) I feel like cigars are the acceptable status smoking symbol. Which is insane, because they're like super, super cigarettes. I know, but it's just cigarettes are kind of grotty. Cigars show wealth and status. It's very odd. They still signify that, so it's very strange. I wrote that, yes, espionage is great to see a movie about spies and spying. The dodgy... Dodgy KGB agents, the pipeline, you know, recovery plot at the start. Yeah, that was cool. I was really, I mean, don't dig too much into it because Saunders' plan apparently had Costco, I keep wanting to say Costco, (laughs) General Costco, incredibly good bulk value pricing um, when he runs the KGB. (laughs) But... um, General Koskov, he's in the boot and Bond's like, that's the first place they'll look. And it's like, would he have trusted Saunders with this plan? If not? He must have known Bond was going to do something. But they put him in the pipeline and they send him to Austria and Q is there at the other end to, like, get of him out. Of course he is. And they get him into, I think it's a Harrier jump jet, and he flies mm. off out of that castle. Yeah, which is played as, like, and I guess it was at the time, it's played as, like, cutting-edge technology. I think it was, yeah. It, it, it almost certainly was, yeah. but, but it, it's really interesting mm. to look at something like that uh, sort of given that sort of showcase yeah. where they're like, look at this insanely cool ultra modern plane that we're using. Oh, it's so good. I mentioned John Reese davies I said Kara is so good. I really love her. Ah, I think. Yes. <laughs> Chris, is there something you need to tell us? <laughs> no, she's just, she's really, really good. She is, you guys have been watching through this. Would you um, agree with this as sort of a summation of Kara that she is basically Tatiana Romanova with added agency? That's not a bad assessment because both have careers. One is obviously mm. a spy uh, mm. and one is being manipulated to be a sniper by her, mm. Koskov, her lover. Both of them are sort of in over their heads without knowing it, though. I, but yes, and she is she is a victim, as, as in she's had the wool pulled over her eyes by Koskov, and he's told her, "Oh, you've got to do this to save me, and fire blank bullets at me, mm. so my defection looks real." And and she's been played, but yeah. to me, that's very realistic for the time yeah. that someone yeah, as yeah. despicable as Koskov would do that, and the way that she gradually learns what's going mm. on. And the patience that Bond has for her to discover that, like he doesn't, he doesn't try to go, your boyfriend's a liar. I mean, he, admittedly, he is trying to work out if she's got mm. more information he can get, but he doesn't just sit her down and go, it's all a lie, because she would not believe that. He lets mm. her kind of gradually learn that things have been going wrong, and and she, and there's that horrible scene where she rings Koskov and he convinces her, and you don't see it; it happens off screen, but he convinces her that Bond is a KGB agent. So she drugs his martini. Mm. And again, spy stuff, proper chloral hydrate spy stuff. Yeah, like, like a, dr- a drugged drink. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think maybe not since Goldfinger, have we seen that? Bond uh, being, no, 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 he was knocked out in Goldfinger. I don't think he was given a drugged drink. He was somewhere, but. Um, he definitely was. I, I, as you say that, I'm like, hang on, I can't think of an actual specific example, but he must have been. Well, I know Daniela in From Russia With Love was drugged. Red Grant drugged. Mm her drink but i'm just trying to think if if bond i'm sure he was but we'll but it's, work. A, it's such a spy trope so it's great that they at least get to play with it here yes yeah. and it's really moving because he he's 
trying to stay awake and he runs to her and he, he rips her sleeve and mm. says, you've got this scar from being shot. Uh, and she's like, how do you know that? And he's like, because I'm, I'm the one they sent to kill you and then passes out. And it's really moving. I found it, yeah. you know, that he's, he's trying his best mm. to show her before he collapses, you know, because <laughs> he, he doesn't know if he'll wake up from this. So he's, his last kind of parting gift to her is they're playing you, you know. Mm. So I just think that their relationship is done really mm. well and she's, she's believably naive and she gets, mm. she gets agency as the film goes on. And she starts kicking ass by the end of it with the, with the Afghan raid. She kicks yeah. it off. Yeah, she's the one who's like, you can't stand back here and not help. And uh, <laughs> and so Carmen Shah, who also, by the way, quite tasty. Sorry, just Art Malik in his no, he's prime, good. looking very, very good. Once he gets cleaned up. I don't know. Is it? Is it? Is it? Is there a weird sort of shake thing going on where I'm like, wow, Bond and Cameron Shah riding on horses <laughs> and with the headgear on, and it's all a little bit like, ah, oh, Lawrence of Arabia, take me away. I'm, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying I'd probably be keen on Rudolph Valentino if it was 100 years ago. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know that Whitaker was a bit useless, but I still kind of loved his weird toy soldier palace mm. and his all it's of his... Great, great entrance. And then he sort of hovers at the edge of the film just, and doesn't yeah. really impact. That's right. It's a, it's a good... Um, it's an interesting character that he's an arms dealer mm. who, who makes all of his servants say, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, and act like it's all military. But, of course, he's never been in the military. He was expelled from the military. He's a loser. And the only way he's able to kind of live out these fantasies is through being an arms dealer. And it's, did you notice all of his statues of Caesar and Napoleon and Hitler, whoever it was, they all have his face. They all have his face. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just... It's great. It's a great Bond villain thing it to is, do. It is. It's a beautifully self-indulgent, but believably so, um, flex. <laughs> like, who goes, you know what? I want to put myself on Hitler's face. I'm going to put my face on Hitler, you know? <laughs> And and it's it's Pushkin who says these are all butchers and he's like no surgeons <laughs> cutting away humanity's broken flesh or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's lovely that Pushkin has this role of the good Russian almost. Mm-hmm. I love that it's not just cartoonishly evil KGB that Pushkin yeah. is is kind of as and that's why Bond is so reluctant to kill him when he's given orders by M to go and kill him. Well, was this going to be was he was that going to be the role that Gogol was going to be or yes, yes. that was right. that was going to yeah. be Gogol. And I'm kind of really glad that it wasn't him because I think John Rhys Davies brings a real groundedness yeah. to the role. And because Gogol is so associated with some of those camper Roger Moore films, I think it's, for posterity's sake, it's really good that they, they created this new role and, and got John Rhys-Davies in because I think he's they work so well together and there's a mutual respect there. You know, as we go back to that scene where he's confronting him saying, you know, I won't know what Kuskov is up to while you're alive. And he's like, oh, then I must die. And then, of course, they have the set-up assassination, which is played so well. Like you kind yeah. of... You kind of know that you kind of like suspect, oh, I don't, are they going to do something here? And then they do it and it's really exciting and thrilling. And then his girlfriend doesn't know he's dead and he's just one eye opens. <laughs> his girlfriend, incidentally, is uh, Virginia Hay, which I, I had completely yes. forgotten. Who is that? So she, she has two very high profile nerdy roles, which is, first of all, she was uh, the Valkyrie in The Road Warrior. So Mad Max 2. Okay. 
right? Which I, I, I take it from your blank uh, reaction. You've never <laughs> seen Natalie, which I should, I'll just add that to the list. I saw Fury yeah. Road. Hey, look, look, that is more than enough. Fury Road is an incredible film. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, she was in Mad Max I mean, 2, The Road Warrior. She has quite a prominent role in that. Flying wedge guy playing music as they like drive across the desert for oh, reasons. That, that's, I, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about that right now because it will take over the rest of the podcast. I, we'll, just, we'll just become the Fury Road podcast. No, but like just that one specific guy, guitarist guy. I just want to ask you. The Doof Warrior. Is that what his name is? That, that's, to, that's what he's called. Yeah, the Duff Warrior. I just want to see now a weekly sort of half-hour podcast from Stu that's just Stu reflecting on the Duff Warrior. <laughs> great week great character or greatest character? <laughs> yeah. I Seriously, though, like when you hit that point in that movie, I'm doing it. I'm doing it, Natalie. When you hit that point in that movie <laughs> and that guy appears on screen, it's such a great moment because if you're not on board, then it's time to get off. But <laughs> Like that that's the point where it's like, okay, I am in. I am one hundred percent in. Take me on this ride. Amazing. <laughs> oh, I remember laughing when I saw him come on, but I could I can picture you in the cinema chain, like just oh, God. cackling. Watching with- that in the cinema, I was literally cackling with glee. <laughs> it uh yeah. <laughs> one day um, we'll recreate it we'll get you up on a semi-trailer and we'll I'll just definitely. strap you in with a flying v and send you down the m1 to the gold coast just yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if you can start a business that's just you know would you like to be the Duff warrior come pay us 50 bucks and we'll strap you to the front of a semi-trailer and <laughs> drive you around the paddock while very loud music plays yeah, well, look, they, they need to monetize it some way. Otherwise, they're missing a trick there. They need to do it like they did, uh, like the Lord of the Rings and, and in New Zealand, <laughs> try and get money that way. That's right. Come drive the Fury Road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Shiny and chrome on the Fury Road. Um, anyway, to, to wrestle back to my point, uh, Virginia Hay also, uh, so she was in Mad Max 2, and she was also quite famously in uh, Farscape. She played uh, Zahn, who was the, the blue lady in Farscape. So I just noticed I I didn't I had forgotten that she was in this and she popped up I'm like oh it's Virginia Hay that's that's cool and she doesn't uh, even have any lines of dialogue she has no lines of dialogue I was surprised but anyway it's uh, yeah I think one of the things that I always heard about this film is that uh, Timothy Dalton didn't want to ha- be constantly betting women he <laughs> he kind of wanted Bond to be a one woman guy and which is why he's not you don't see him. You know, like View to a Kill, I think we worked out Bond has sex with four women. In this one, he's hints at getting on with the woman in the pre-credit sequence, which we can talk about. The woman who's <laughs> the woman who's on her yacht going, everyone's so boring here. I just wish I could find a real man. And then Bond just lands on her boat. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm with your sister. But yeah, I don't I and so I guess the the downside of Bond being a one-woman man is you don't get any other really great characters like a Grace Jones Mayday or a Barbara Carrera, Fatima Blush, or uh, even, even the even the secondary uh, like love interests and 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 Bond girls. Uh, we we don't have any of those really in in this movie. There's no, there's Kara and that's it. Felix Slider has a couple of babes who sort of kidnap Bond and take him oh, to his do too. Ship. That's right, yeah. But they just you know <laughs> he kind of he kind of acts very Bondy towards them towards the end. He's like, well, if that party's still on, yeah, which is nice. There's a few little touches of Bond's rampant libido. They keep <laughs> uh, but they dull down a lot. But as I say, but, I think it's 
it's because it's a real romance. And so I'm, I'm happy for that trade-off. And in all honesty, it, it makes a logical sense that the Mujahideen, let's face it, they're all blokes. I don't think historically they probably would have a lot of women riding horses out to, I don't know, I could be very wrong. Call in if you're an expert on uh, 1980s <laughs> Afghanistan history. I guess I'm just judging based on what came after. But again, I could be essentializing. I'm sorry if indeed <laughs> I, I'm now questioning everything I say. Uh, I'll move on and uh, say that also on my list was Necros, who is uh, Whitaker and Kuskov's kind of henchman, the blonde guy. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay, radio, yeah. He's really effective as a henchman. Yeah, like he single-handedly kind of gets Kuskov out of that uh, safe house, which is all pre-planned, of course, but he gets becomes the milkman and he strangles mm. people with his Walkman headphones. <laughs> And that song that he plays just becomes a really effective sort of motif that just... Yes, well, that is a song by uh, The Pretenders and Chrissy Kind that they wrote specifically for the film. Mm. And, uh, yeah, but I just love the fact that it's 1987 and he has a Walkman. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and it's a deadly Walkman, although not as deadly... Not as deadly as Q's ghetto blaster. His ghetto blaster. I yeah. was sure he was gonna he was gonna go the other way and make the boombox uh, bun. Ah, either way, had to toss for it. Look, Stu, you had to be happy with a little bit of a walk around the lab with Q. Oh, it was great. Like, like I love a good walk and talk in the in the Q lab. It's fantastic. They had some great stuff going on. I love the couch. The couch. <laughs> the couch. Where did that guy go? Does he just stay there now? But what 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 purpose? We can't get out. That's it. Q's like, well, you you've you've made your bed now. You lie in it. <laughs> what what purpose could it serve? How do you sort of subtly maneuver a couch <laughs> into the right position? To... <laughs> but also, the Aston Martin is back in this mm. film. Yes, after... I noticed that. That was great. An updated one, and that sequence on the ice lake before the 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 you know during the kind of the ski chase when they're getting across the border. Mm. You know, would have made the sound of music a lot more cool if they'd had a Aston Martin <laughs> with like an outrigger function skidding around on an ice lake uh, sure. in, a, in a house, like drove a house out onto a lake. And then it was great. I just, I love that. And uh, it was a really good action sequence. And I mm. forgot that that happened because, of course, Die Another Day has a massive ice lake car chase thing. uh, I had forgotten that they did that super well in Die Another Day. And I I do love the self-destruct button as well. (laughs) Like Aston Martin just has a... Well, you know what? I actually thought, I actually was sitting there thinking like, okay, so like, is he just going to leave this super high-tech spy car just sitting there for them to pour over? And it's like, no, of course it has a self-destruct button. It's a spy car. But I do love that it's just right there because, (laughs) I mean, on the one hand, of course, you want your self-destruct button to be really easily accessible so you can very quickly self-destruct this expensive car. But also, what happens if you bumped, you know, and spilled your coffee and bumped and it could be very <laughs> yeah. dangerous. You were trying to change the radio and you hit the self-destruct. <laughs> uh, I hate easy listening. Oh, no! <laughs> I don't hate it that much. Just the quiet tones of Michael Bolton just sort of <laughs> in the wind as the ashes pour down. I did want to say about this film that I felt like for me it was a little bit of a travelogue. Like a lot of the locations in this film are places I've been. Um, Oh, right, okay. Yeah, weirdly enough. And all of the Afghan scenes were filmed in Morocco. And I knew that at first sight when I saw the, oh, gosh, I can't remember the name of it, the Kasbah, the big mud kind of city. 
right. in the background there. And I went, that's Orzazat. I've been there. This is all filmed <laughs> in Morocco. And then in the credits, it says in Morocco. And Orzazat, as you might remember, Stu, was Yunkai, yes. I think, from Game of Thrones. Not Marine, but Yunkai, third season. They filmed, and they filmed in Essaouira in Morocco as well. But Orzazat, they filmed Gladiator there. It's been a huge, anywhere you need medieval, North African, you know, Middle Eastern, you go to Orzazat because it's Morocco. It's quite safe. It, they've got a very big, obviously, tax write-off for films to go film there. <laughs> so that was there. I've also been to Tangiers. I've been to Gibraltar. So when they first, I, I again, totally did not remember what the opening uh, pre-credit sequence was and went, oh, my God, it's Gibraltar. <laughs> and they even had the surprise monkey as a surprise monkey, as a Barbary. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, John Glenn um, moment. John Glenn moment, yes, with a monkey. I've been to Vienna and I love the fact that they arrive in Vienna having hitched a ride and then he goes taxi and they're immediately in a horse-drawn carriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you just get a taxi and go to the hotel? <laughs> well, you know, he's Bond. But I, yes, I, I quite liked the little, given that we're all locked at home and who knows when we'll ever get to go anywhere outside of our respective bubbles again. It was quite <laughs> nice to have a little like, oh, I've been, oh, look at that. Oh, that was quite personally nice for me. I did love the fact that Bond and Kara go to an amusement park and they ride a roller coaster and a Ferris wheel and they turn Yeah, w- w- with her in quite a nice dress and him in a tuxedo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got to say, I didn't hate it. I did not hate hey, it. Hey, look, you know, it's all good. He's, win- he's winning her big bunnies and, and going on Ferris wheels. It's great stuff. That tuxedo looks so good on Timothy Dalton. It certainly does. So good. <laughs> He wears it well. Oh, I tell you what, more men should wear tuxedos. It's just, it's flattering. It's just, it's just good. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> and I love that he's in a tuxedo for kind of the first half hour of the movie with the whole being, because they're at the concert and he's got a steel, and he's got the little adjustable um, neck covering so you don't see the white shirt mm. when he's being a sniper. Oh. <sighs> Um, And uh, then, yes, I I ended too by saying the big plane stunts with the Jeep driving on and then the big opium bags falling off out the edge and Bond and Necros um, fighting to, I don't know what Necros hoped to achieve at that point. As they so often are, they never really think, "Eh, maybe I've done all my service for you. Maybe I don't need to risk my life anymore. Yeah, that's right. Very, very clearly stupid and then he does have a nice line because he, he cuts his shoe lace and uh, Necros is holding onto his shoe and then he falls off and uh, Kara says, what happened? And he says, he got the boot and then immediately realises they're about to hit a mountain. So the pun, <laughs> I, I love the way they dealt with that pun is it was a bit of a pun into risk, danger. Yes, you know. that's it. They kind of throw it away. It's, it's quite good. Well, it's almost like commentary, like puns are dangerous and could land you in a mountain. <laughs> So that's the end of my list. I mentioned the fact that it was romantic. I mentioned I really liked Art Malik. So, yeah, what else about this film? I guess maybe we should say the plot. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nat, you've probably Wikipedia'd this, but the whole first act is a really, really close adaptation of the short story of The Living Daylights. I did read that they had a bunch of it was based from the short story, but I haven't read the short story. So is basically everything up to if he buys me, I'll thank him for it. And 
closes with that line that they use in the film, whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. So they don't find out who she was? No. So the film just sort of extrapolates from that and builds a really interesting Cold War spy plot movie from that setup really nicely until it gets distracted by opium. So uh, you don't know that Koskov was faking his defection? It's been probably a decade since I read the story, but I don't think we even get anything more than a defecting KGB person. Um, I do know, if you like, I can go through a little bit of the casting process because, of course, this is Timothy Dalton. Absolutely. For the first time. And apparently Albert Broccoli insisted that he fired Roger Moore. And Roger Moore was like, no, I resigned. (laughs) You know, I retired. So they auditioned Timothy Dalton. They auditioned Pierce Brosnan and actually did offer him the role. And that's what sparked the public interest in the fact that he'd been offered the role. And then NBC went, oh, you're going to be James Bond? Let's redo Remington Steel. And so they had a clause. They had a a 60-day option in his contract to make a further season of the series. And three days before his contract was due to end, they activated this clause. So he couldn't do, or he could have done Bond. But what it says here is that Broccoli did not want Bond to be the same person who was in a current TV show. He didn't want that confusion. I guess it would be like having, you know, Timothy Dalton be on ALF or something. Um, (laughs) ALF, stop eating all those cats. (laughs) But on Melmac, we, oh, man, (laughs) 80s. That that is a admirably deep pull for you, Natalie. Well done. (laughs) I loved ALF. I can't remember. Something about Melmac. He had a girlfriend called Rhonda. His name wasn't actually ALF. It was like. Gordon Chumley or Shumley or something. (laughs) But, yeah, and the guy who was the dad in ALF, the actual human father, hated everything about the show. (laughs) Like, just hated being there, hated the fact that the puppet was more popular than him. And I feel like that came across in his performance. But, yeah, look, hey, let's let's make some 80s TV references. Let's go to Perfect Strangers. Let's do it. If we're going to do 80s callbacks, this was my prime dodgy American sitcom (laughs) watching era because that's what we got on TV. It was Full House. It was Family Matters and Urkel. uh, It was Perfect Strangers. It was the Golden Girls, you know. Speaking of the Golden Girls, been doing a Golden Girls rewatch on Stan. It holds up. Is it on Stan? It's on Stan. My God, I have st- I've been watching it via dodgy YouTube clips for no, years. No, no, get, get it on stand. The whole thing's on there. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's, it's so really good. really good. <laughs> it's mwah, It's perfect. It, I cannot believe that show got made. I'm, I, when you look back and think they put four women in their 50s, 60s on a primetime show that's really quite racy, you know, for its time. It was. It's got quite a lot of... <laughs> They call yeah, each well, there's a, a lot of sex jokes. Like, I mean, the, the entire character of Blanche is, is just a, a walking sex joke. Nuding mm. is my heritage. And what does that mean? Her mother was a slut too. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't use those jokes on TV anymore. Okay, Stu, we need to do a Golden Girls podcast. I'm sure many of them exist. That's the next project. But the other thing about the Golden Girls is you watch it and you see all of these people who went on to become like TV and movie stars mm. in small guest roles on the Golden Girls, like George Clooney is in an episode. Yeah, absolutely. As a young cop and, oh, look, I've got so much time for that show. It was like a hit series. It was the biggest thing on TV. Yes. 
anyway. crazy. It's still a thing that we talk about and has a really – it's not just a, a sort of footnote. It's still there in pop culture canon. Yes, and you can buy so much merch based on the Golden Girls. So, yes, so they had offered Brosnan this role. He then could not do it or our broccoli went, no, we're not going to have this crossover. They also looked at another chap for this role, someone closer to home. They auditioned, quite seriously, Sam Neill. Really? I've seen his film, his screen test, actually. Oh, my God, it, it exists? It's on the DVD. I think they even played it because they talked to Sam Neill on Australian Story, which for those who are coming from international is a documentary series. And they dug that clip out of the archives as well. That's and how, how does he go? Like, is, is he convincing as Bond? Reasonably. He came out and said quite recently that his heart wasn't really in it. He was just doing it because his agent said, you know, if you don't go for the screen test, you know, I'm cutting off the books. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like Bond, but he's, you can tell it's its never going to be him. Well, they also auditioned some other people um, or touted in the press anyway, and one person who was uh, rumoured was Brian Brown. Brian Brown? Wow. Yeah, Australian actor. Can you imagine? Brian, he's so, like from Cocktail, I think, was his big, he was he was quite big after Cocktail, I guess, Yeah. with Tom Cruise, and he's so Australian. <laughs> He's extremely Australian. <laughs> he's, he's More Australian. so than George Lazenby, who's basically just using his Australian accent when he plays Bond. Yes, and more so, much more so than Sam Neill, who of course is New Zealander, but Absolutely, you know, yeah. we, we claim them all. Uh, unless another person that Metro-Golden-Mayer suggested they get in was Mel Gibson, and uh, Broccoli was not interested. So what <laughs> Well done, Broccoli. I am so glad you went uh, with Timothy Dalton. Weirdly, so, I can I can see a version of Bond with Gibson in it. Mm. I, I definitely see that. I, I can see where they were going with that, but it would have been a very different Bond. Cracking wise. But but he can be he can be very like on screen he can be a very like chaotic presence like like you know. All, all the crazy shit that's happened in his personal life aside, like on screen, like, like, you know, I mean, obviously in Lethal Weapon, he's playing like crazy, but he can be menacing. He can be mm. extremely dangerous feeling. So I, th- I think he could have, it could have been a really interesting casting if they'd actually made it happen. True. But I'm glad they didn't. No, that's uh, right. And, and Broccoli was reluctant about Dalton because Dalton had been quite, I guess he'd been in the running or considered for a long time. And he was always very public going, nah, nah. Not really. I'm a Shakespearean actor. In 30 years, I'll play a Doctor Who villain, but sure. Um, <laughs> in a big hat. Uh, sorry, big collar. Big collar. Big collar. So, yes, but uh, Pierce Brosnan would get his chance in a few mm. years' time. He just That's had to. Yeah. Would he ever? He had to wait. Look, I won't <laughs> hear anything. Sliding doors, it's such a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Because imagine yep. if this was a Pierce Brosnan film. This was the first Pierce Brosnan film. Mm. It would have been a totally different movie. Well, what it says uh, in my research, aka Wikipedia, apparently Broccoli ended up really liking Dalton's, you know, really very serious attempt at changing the tone of the Bond that he plays and creating something new because he felt like Pierce Brosnan might have just been a continuation of Roger Moore. Yeah. And so I guess Timothy Dalton acts as this break and a changing point, which sort of suits the later 80s slightly grittier action genre Mm. and i don't want to jump you guys ahead too much but one of the interesting little and i think it must be on purpose one of the interesting little tidbits at the start of goldeneye with that pre-credit sequence is it's all set 
nine years ago or something, which places it in 1986. It does. Brosnan was almost James Bond. That is true. Yes, because the whole point is it was a Cold War operation and then it all comes back to haunt him, you know, in the post-Cold War era. And, of course, that whole movie is about him dealing with another spy who's very similar to him. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And both of the the films, this film opens, you know, the first time we see Bond, although we don't really see him, is he's jumping out of a plane and doing a big freefall mm. and the first time you see him in golden eyes he's jumping off the side of that dam doing a big yeah. freefall bungee jump <laughs> the freefall in the living daylights it's bond and the two other double o's that are with him yes and those two double o's did you know um the way that they picked those two um actors one of them was picked because he kind of resembles george lazenby and the other was picked because he kind of resembles roger moore <laughs> oh i did not know that you meet them all one by one, and then the third one you meet is, of course, Bond in that lovely hero shot moment where he spins around to see whichever one's just fallen to his death. Because the, uh, I guess, the bad guys, who we will later find out is this death despise Koshkov. I keep wanting to say Costco. I can't help it. Koshkov <laughs> and Whitaker, you know, they've got a mob in there. They've got a spy in there to kind of pick off the double O's. So it starts as an exercise. And I do love that, like, it's M's office on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they keep that little element going, which I quite liked. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's fun. What I thought was really interesting is that this this film got mixed reviews at the time. There was a, a lot of positivity post the Roger Moore View to a Kill, but there were some people who didn't quite like it and they found it a bit dull or a bit lacking the humour. Some people actually then went, well, where's the humour? It's a Bond film, you know? <laughs> And it's true. It's it's a it's a part of the series, and and you know you don't want to lose it completely. And I don't th- I don't think they do. But this is definitely a more serious outing. If you're going to chip the Living Daylights for being humorless, then there's several films in, yes. in, in our future that would be that would lose severe points uh, because of that <laughs> exact criteria. He's a lot more of a playful Bond, and you guys have talked about it almost at the, earlier in the podcast. He's a lot more playful than his reputation suggests, though. There's a lovely moment when Kara's looking at that dress and he says, let's buy it. And she says, well, who'd pay for it? And he just sort of smiles and says, Yorgi, of course. And <laughs> that's the sort of way that it plays. It's, it's, it's knowing and it's Bond is sort of keeping his tongue in his cheek. But that, that's right. Yeah. Him is a lot more grounded. But he must have had to buy that dress. Or did they? Ch- how did they charge it to Yorgi? It'll go on expenses. That's fine then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely it's definitely more of a wry humour. Like, like instead of the broad sort of uh, slapsticky humour of the, the later Roger Moore era, they dial it back to a more sort of wry and in-universe humour, which is good. Like, you know, like I said, not every Bond film should be a grim and gritty slog and not every Bond film should be a wacky farce. But I like both of those elements of the, of the franchise. So it's good to see different versions of it. I think there's another moment there with the playfulness that you mentioned, Chris, is when he has a chat, a private chat with Carmen Shah about the Mujahideen and how he needs to get back to the Soviet base to stop Mm -hmm. Kushkov going on with his plan. And uh, they've sent 
Kara off to change and refresh and he comes back in and sees her and says that she's beautiful in Afghani. And then they sort of end up having a fight uh, because he wants to go back to the base and she's going to go on with Carmen Shah. She's like, why can't I come with you or why are you not coming with me? And he insults her or something and then she calls him a horse's ass and starts <laughs> beating, beating him with a cushion in anger but it's obviously you know you don't hurt someone with a cushion so you're beating them out of frustration but you you clearly have chosen a cushion because you don't want to hurt them and then he realizes you should call me a horse's ass and then they just start laughing and it's just a lovely moment where it's both of them being kind of well certainly from Kara's quite scared she's vulnerable the tension breaks when he realizes that she's called him a horse's ass so I think that was <laughs> that was very playful as well it was yeah it was definitely a, a fun little scene and again like it's, it's one of those things it's got a lot of it, it's very sweet like you sort of said like, like there's there's a very sweet sort of romance that builds between yeah. uh, Bond and Kara throughout the the film it's it's really nicely done we haven't seen something like that for a long time in this franchise that the roger moore era has mostly been him being a playboy which is which is fine that's his version of the character mm. but yeah like it was nice to see him just yeah he fell in love with a a, a czechoslovakian cellist as you do mm. a czech cellist a czech che- i'm trying to make a pun that just doesn't exist oh you'll find that if anyone can <laughs> what did we think of the new money penny oh was she in the film <laughs> I, I'm, I'm totally riffing on your your Stacy Sutton thing from last uh, week. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I, don't, I don't think this money penny is is as bad as Stacy Sutton from last week, but I think no. um she definitely. Well, I mean, you know, she's fine, and she does the money penny thing, and the, and he, she has a nice repartee with with Timothy Dalton, which is nice. It would have been really interesting to see the original money penny sort of go toe to toe with Timothy Dalton, because I mean, she would have been in her sixties at this point. <laughs> <laughs> she yes, actually well had at this point approached Albert Arbocoli to say why doesn't Money Penny continue on my Money Penny continue on as the new M <laughs> oh what a good idea yeah that would have been fantastic I would have loved to have seen that she knows but, where all the bodies are buried yeah. yeah and obviously planted the seeds there of perhaps a female M in the future that's right yeah um I think you're right she's she's fine she does the money penny thing but she's not memorable particularly in beyond the scenes that she's in and it's interesting isn't it because like money penny can be seen sometimes as quite a throwaway character but then mm-hmm. when you don't have lois maxwell being money penny suddenly it's like oh there was actually something very specific that she was doing that for some reason uh, caroline bliss isn't doing mm. and look she does actually do some detective work she's not just um filing kind of thing like he gets her to track down Kara because Mm. she's not in the actual um stash of spies that they have details on and so she tracks her down so that's good Mm. um I do want to also mention at the start I I I don't want to forget there's a fantastic character whose name is let me just find it the actor is Julie T Wallace as Rosika Miklos she is the woman at the Trans-Siberian Pipeline. Oh, yes. Who helps Bond uh, get uh, Kushkov out of there. 
Koskov. I keep saying Kushkov or Costco. It's Koskov. <laughs> you can see why I'm getting confused. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, and so he gets, and she's like, pleasure to work with you again, Mr. Bond. So she's obviously a insider. And I like that she's just a regular woman, you know, in overalls. And she says, right, I'm off to, you know, you get there. She's completely practical. And then she's like, I'm off to deal with the supervisor and has a like spanner in her hand. And then she goes yeah. in there and just like, unzips her overalls and takes out her hair and then shoves his face into her cleavage <laughs> to distract him from the lights all flashing because they've sent something through the pipeline. And then, you know, when it's done, she pushes him away and zips up and says, what kind of girl do you think I am? <laughs> it's brilliant. What it is, is great. Talk about making a big impact with a small role. Like just – such a great little cameo there. Just a really good And such um, a such a wonderful subversion. I know I know it's because like she's a she's a she's not conventionally attractive. And so yeah. she's not but, a model working no. at the Trans Siberian pipeline. Exactly. She but th- is, that's the thing. Like normally in this sort of situation, it would be like a femme fatale who would go and like yeah. seduce the person. But it's like this big burly um you know, <laughs> pipe worker who goes over and she's like, Oh, you know. <laughs> but it works. It yeah. totally works. It's great. Because, you know, who can resist a motorboating? Hey, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention is I had this thought when I was watching and they go to the safe house, that big posh. And I love that whole operation, the way that they he comes in as the milkman. He's got grenades in bottles of milk. <laughs> and then he changes to be a doctor. He puts, changes his coat, puts on a, takes off his milkman apron and then puts on a stethoscope. And all of a sudden he's a doctor coming out of the, mm. it's really clever. Just like such a clever, quick, sharp, in, out operation. But did you notice there was a macaw, a blue and yellow macaw? I did, yes. And I was like, oh, gee, I wonder if that's like a reference to the macaw from For Your Eyes Only. For apparently, Your Eyes Only, yeah. Apparently it's the same macaw. Oh, really? Like like literally the same bird? Yeah. Uh, I read that somewhere on um, director John Glenn decided to include the macaw from For Your Eyes Only. It can be seen squawking in the kitchen of Bladen House when Necros attacks MI6 officers. I'm just sad that they didn't have it go, give us a kiss, give us a kiss. <laughs> they should have. If it's there, they, I mean, you, you're obviously doing that. Like, call back. Mm. <laughs> On that, that little bit, it's one of the really great fight sequences of a Bond film. Bond's not even there. It's He's not even there. It is not even a named character, mm. but it's a really awesome fight sequence. He holds his own. Like, yeah. <laughs> It's it's yeah. I I was stunned that Bond because Bond has just left in mm. a car when the attack happens and I was expecting him to turn around and come back or yeah I was expecting him to crash in and and fight the the henchman himself yeah but of course you can't have him there because he would win and they need everyone to lose so they can get <laughs> yes exactly way because that's it's a fake defection mm. so. You know, he needs to not be there. But, again, it is strange to see this very complicated fight scene in a kitchen with no Bond there. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) It is strange. What do you think the – in terms of that last half or that last third, I guess, that you said was bloated stew and also, Chris, you you talked about that too. I'm interested in diving a bit deeper. Like what what could have been done or what was too much at that point? I think one thing that the film really suffers from is – Koskov and Whitaker, for that matter, are kind of both damp squibs of villains, and they're trying to go down a, that sort of Cold War thriller 
root and have more grounded villains, but we never really learn beyond a little bit of defraud the Russians. What is Koskov actually wanting to do with this? Is he just out to defraud the Soviets? Is that literally the extent of his plan? And beyond that, what's the point of the whole Spiatspionum angle of that? Is it just a bit of overkill to get Pushkin out of the way, but that, and then they pull the drugs um, subplot into that to try and beef it out, and then it, that whole subplot gets in the way of resolving the the Spionum mm. plot. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, like that that whole last bit of the movie with the opium and everything else, and and even like everything in Afghanistan, they've obviously gone there for a bit of exotic locale, and 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 also to set up like a a third act climax where where they have like a big showdown with lots and lots of people shooting at each other. But you could have had the exact same result if you had integrated. Oh God, I forgot. Like the arm the arms dealer's uh, name. Whitaker, yeah, Whitaker. If you had made Whitaker the final boss, to, to use that yeah. term, and have his goons be the ones that they have to sort of fight, you know, because they set them up. They set them up that he's got his own private army. And mm. why wouldn't you then make that the, the people you are fighting? Maybe in a weird way, like they end up the, the Russians, like like James Bond has to work with like Russian soldiers mm. to storm this this arms dealer's compound or something like that, you know, and, and tie it all together that way. Instead of suddenly involving Afghanis, like it just seemed like a really weird turn at a very late stage in the movie. And then they're like, oh, and also there's a whole opium smuggling thing going on. And they, you know, Cameron Shan has that change of heart, thanks to Kara, where they, you know, Bond realizes that they're smuggling pure opium in a raw opium in Red Cross sort of aid bags, which apparently was quite controversial. Like the Red Cross was pretty cranky at them for doing that. <laughs> and they had to eventually put like disclaimers on the v- VHS versions and stuff that this is the not. The Red Cross does not Red Cross. opium. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's clear to us that they're smuggling, you know, you put, you want something to not be touched, you put it in a Red Cross bag. That, that makes sense. But I suppose they didn't ask the Red Cross. Yeah. <laughs> Ask for forgiveness, not permission. That's exactly. that's what I say. But yeah, so the idea is that he's using the uh, Koskov is using the Soviet money to buy opium, and then he'll make even more money. So he can still buy Soviet arms, but then also buy Western arms from Whitaker. But there's no real yeah. explanation mm. as to why he's going to use. Whereas uh, I and guess and there's no stakes to it. There's no stakes to yeah. it at all. It's like I don't I don't know why he wants to do this, and I I, I don't care. Like it doesn't matter to to anyone it just is a very weird thing to into and they obviously worked backwards from okay we, we've got we want to go to obviously morocco for afghanistan so let's do something with that like how can that fit into the story and it's just it just it, it's the, the rest of the movie is so good that the fact that it kind of falls apart at, at the last hurdle is just really disappointing yeah like the production values and the stunts and everything in that last act are sublime oh it's great the, mm. the story that it needs to hang off isn't there yeah but he does blow up a bridge that's a foreground video shot that's a beautiful piece of of um special effect yeah but i, I did like that the bridge blew up yes mm. like, like he, he blew it up and then it fell over and then blew up again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to be sure yeah. but I, I i like the fact that he went to 
plant the bomb because first of all he meant to just send the bomb away in the truck but he got caught in the truck and then he gets his bomb in the in the red cross bag and he takes it onto the plane and he's trying to set it up in the plane but then he has to try and get out quickly and of course he walks out at the same time that koskov and necros walking towards the stairs and he's walking out and he sees them and so all of a sudden his plan is bugging he can't you know, he's got to stay on the plane and lock himself in and then, you know, start up the plane. So, and they can't, they don't want to shoot the plane because they don't want to wreck the plane. And I guess it's got a bunch of stuff in it. So I like the fact that they make that turn from his plan to just put a bomb on the plane and let it explode. Uh Oh, he can't do that. So he gets Kara on board and he says, I'm, I'm going to go defuse a bomb. And, of course, he thinks they're okay, and that's when Necros, who's jumped on the plane, and they have their big battle. So I like the fact that his plan buggered up and he has to try and readjust, but it allows him – He, he it, it's a bit of a Goldfinger tribute. He's able to, like, diffuse it or turn it off with, like, three seconds to go. Yeah. It's a brilliant, like, escalation of stakes. Yeah. Of, they're mm. cutting back between them fighting on this, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, a, a rope cage thing? Oh, a nice. net. A yeah. net. A <laughs> rope cage. could my brain be any less engaged in the english language (laughs) i need to express a rope cage which is eight letters when in fact i could just say a net which is three (laughs) oh god so so they're you know wrestling on this net or rope cage you know and as I like to say, uh, and and then you cut back to the bomb and you see it ticking down and you see Kara trying to keep the plane yeah. steady and it, it's got it's a, it's cut I think really well edited at that stage to keep the tension quite high and then he does the boot line and then he goes back to the cockpit realizes that the you know they escape they get over the mountain and then he realizes that the mujahideen are being pursued by Russian tanks of all things and uh, so he says oh wait control this again keep it steady this time she's like what are you going to do he says i'm going to drop a bomb so he like calls back to that line so that's like that kind of script writing is there yes but as you say that the fuller story is kind of ignored and just don't worry about that don't worry about that this is by richard maybaum longtime mm-hmm. bond writer and michael g wilson again who's also the producer, along with Albert Broccoli, who's Broccoli's uh, stepson. So, yeah, it's interesting how it's the same writers and yet they can do different things. Yeah, and I wonder, um, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you talked about Octopussy and General Olof and that character. And I wonder, one of the things I did wonder when I was thinking about this film is you don't want to go big and camp like that because it's the wrong movie for it. But if the character of Koskov, once we sort of, get past the the twist that he's sort of faked his own defection had revealed that he had some sort of motivation of sort of some fanaticism or something beyond i'm just in it for myself here or at least if he was in it for himself Mm. how was he going to be in it for himself like was he going to disappear off the planet was he going to you Mm. know fake his death And, and and bond even says to him i think at one point is what's the plan are you going to retire and enjoy the amenities of the west or something like that but yeah so he's he's not quite a fanatic but he's yeah. not given enough of the naked self-interest to really... Bond um, throws him the opening line to go, here's your opportunity to do your villainous monologue, and we get nothing. But we do get Bond getting him a hampers from Harrods mm. with uh, foie gras and all these expensive things, and then he pulls out a bottle of Bollinger 
And M says, that wasn't on the list. And he says, well, the choices were questionable. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very Bond thing. Bond is like, no, this is not acceptable champagne. I'll be getting the good stuff. (laughs) And there's no really explanation as to why he's obsessed with Bond. I guess because he says, I want Bond to look after me, specifically asked for for Bond. There's no real explanation as to why. I guess it does come out a bit later that he says, oh, no, they'll send Bond after Pushkin. Um, to take him out so he kind of is setting bond up Mm. for that but there's also the suggestion that they know each other like that they just through various spy work like that they they have a working relationship in the same way that he has a working relationship with pushkin yeah Mm. i quite like the character of saunders who's the czech contact or v i think he's viennese contact but he's working in czechoslovakia and he's kind of this is my patch and he's kind of threatened by bond because bond has such a reputation and bond is just like uh-huh uh-huh and he says what's your escape plan he says well you know chap old chap uh, section 26a a uh, need to know basis and bond's like uh-huh and then that comes back later when he gets koskov out and takes him away in the car he's like where are you taking him he's like i uh, need to know basis <laughs> It's a lovely... That relationship evolves as well. Yeah, and so Bond is really upset when Saunders dies. And I don't... It wasn't quite clear because it's Necros, again, with his headphones, with some Mm. balloons this time, like an East German athlete version of It, the clown. It's very strange. And he's put a bomb outside a cafe to kill... Like, does he know who Bond is at that point? Or why is he tracking Saunders or...? Uh, my own reading of it is he's tracking Bond because he know they want Bond to continue their plan down the line with Pushkin. So this is all about sort of pushing the British to really have it in for Pushkin. Yeah, oh, that's true. Mm. It just seems... Yeah, it just seemed a little... I suppose that's that they need Bond alive, don't they? So they don't want to kill Bond, but they want to get him really angry. And he is. Like, Timothy Dalton has a look of... Oh, do you know what my favourite Timothy Dalton moment in both of his films is? What's that? The fake-out moment with when he sees the balloons and he pulls his gun and he bursts out and it's a little kid (laughs) with his arm. That moment. And Bond just sort of reels back. It's just a really played, well-played little fake-out moment. And the balloon that says Death Despise on it or the Schmerzspianum. Schmerzspianum. I can't speak tonight. Just my mouth has abandoned me, which sounds saucier than it is. So I guess as we move towards ranking this film, oh. Stu, what are your thoughts? Well, I was I was a bit conflicted about this one because it is after A View to a Kill, it is such a step up and it's such a breath of fresh air. It's great to see Timothy Dalton. I'd forgotten how much I liked him as James Bond. He's really, really good. This movie is really good. Like, it's very tight. It does fall apart a bit in the third act, but that's that's a problem with a lot of Bond films. And, like, I liked it. It's, it's just a solid movie. It's a solid Bond movie. It's a solid spy movie. It's a solid action movie. It, it's a really good down-the-middle movie. When it comes to putting it on my list, I found that it fell from the top sort of echelons very quickly because I can't, obviously, I mean, it's not going It's not going in number one spot. It's not going above The Spy Who Loved Me. It's not going above Dr. No. It's not going above On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And we're down to sixth place. That left us with Moonraker in seventh place. And I was like, well, I like Moonraker more than this movie, (laughs) Uh, which is possibly a controversial opinion. But I was like, you know what? I think, but Below Moonraker is For Your Eyes Only. And I think this movie does what For Your Eyes Only was trying to do far better. 
which is pare back all the all the nonsense and the silliness and take it back to sort of a, a serious spy movie. Um, I thought so, you had Live and Let Die, Live and Let Die after Moonraker. Not on the list that I have. I've got uh, For Your Eyes Only and then Live and Let Die. Okay, well then I've had the wrong list up on the website for weeks now. <laughs> I will have to change that because I've had you with Moonraker, then Live and Let Die, then For Your Eyes Only. So I'll, oh, okay. uh, I'll just oh, wow. make a change okay. there. Well. Yeah, these things are hard to keep on top of. Um, so I have to, I've have i run out of room too on my little square. If you go to my blogs, nataliebehensky.com, and each episode I have a little um, animated graphic is the word. I have a graphic at the end of each recap with where all the films stand in our respective lists. And so trying to keep them up to date, but I, I've, I've run out of room, so I'm going to have to either start make the font smaller or <laughs> create a longer, a longer thing. I don't know what thing. I'm going to do, but I'll, I'll maybe it'll be a font issue. Maybe I'll just raise narrow all the gaps between the. Mm. I'll do some kerning work. I'll just I'll do yes. some kerning work, Stu. I'll solve it. <laughs> so fiddle with the kerning. Yes. You're going to put it under Moonraker, is that right? Yes, I mean, so all that to say, uh, I don't think this will be an issue for now because this will go just below Moonraker, so in my eighth place, which puts it about dead in the middle of yeah. my current list, which just sounds of, fine. Yeah, it feels right. Like, that feels yeah. about where it should be for me anyway. Um, where, did, where did you uh, think it should be rated? I'm struggling because I enjoyed this so much, and I do think I might be a little bit Dalton-struck, a little bit Tim-struck. <laughs> I just have oh, That's totally understandable. The thing is, is that I, I'm really regretting. I'm like, I feel like this is a better film than Diamonds Are Forever, but for some reason I put Diamonds Are Forever in third place, and I'm like, <laughs> why did I do that? I put um, it quite high up. as I'm, It's in fourth place in mine, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's just, it's it's a Bond movie where lots of stuff happens and it's fun. Yeah. And, of course, then I've got Dr. No from Russia with Love, Moonraker. And I feel like I'm similar to you. I think I watch Moonraker more, but I'm also cognizant that I don't watch this film enough. And I think <laughs> it's... I don't like I I if I had watched this film more over my life it's just not one of the ones I default to and I'm regretting that because I think it's a better quality film than a lot so I think I'm going to do basically the same as you is put it in under Moonraker only because I just love watching Moonraker Yeah that's it like I have a deep so I have a deep fondness for Moonraker So that puts it in 7th place for me just above Live and Let Die which right, is okay. she's above on Her Majesty's Secret Service so <laughs> my, my list is all like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, pretty good film, but I think this one is better. I think Dalton is a far better Bond than Lazenby. I love the Kara relationship. It's so different and unique, and I think that's why I'm quite happy to put it in seventh place, which, to be honest, when I was watching this film, I was so caught up in it. I was like, oh, this is going to go in, like, number three. This is going <laughs> to go in after Spy Who Loved Me. I'm enjoying this so much. But then when I look at my list again, I'm like, ah, but then it would be above Dr. No and from Russia with love. And I feel like I can't really do that. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, like, the thing is for me, I, I definitely, I really, really enjoyed this movie, but there's no way it's going above the spy who loved me for me. The spy who loved me is a goddamn masterpiece. Natalie, yeah, I love that movie it's, so much. It's my second place. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no way, but it could go in after, like, I legitimately think this is a better written, put together film than Diamonds Are Forever. Sure. But I've snookered myself at this point, so I can't. But that's the fun of these lists. That's what I love about doing them is that we're, we're, we're getting these films in order and, and they're sort of all slotting together. And, and it's really interesting. It's Things interesting. that we would normally like objectively put higher or lower are sort of falling in very strange places. And this is what we mean. If we get to the end of this series and then we decide, oh, maybe, you know, redo a few things, then we can 
have maybe like a few choices where we move some specific things and I feel like I might move Diamonds Forever <laughs> down a bit. But then I do watch that movie whenever it comes on. Like I'll still watch it. It's still I... – it's got some classic Sean Connery's hairpiece. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's like I Again, I, I really like Diamonds Are Forever as a movie. I – I'm also rethinking putting it in fourth spot just below <laughs> The Spy Who Loved Me. But, well, you know, that's life. We yeah. all have regrets. We're doing it in order. So you're right. It does it does snooky you in some ways to do this. And I think if you had asked me my list before this process, then it would be it would be interesting to have done that, like work out a list of what we would regard things and see how they actually compare. But we didn't do that. That's fine. So, okay, so for you it's in eighth spot. For me it's in seventh. But I think – both in the middle, this is the 15th official Bond film, and it's right in the middle of where we, we have it. So I think that makes sense. Absolutely. Chris, where do you where do you rank this movie? Uh, this is actually one of the ones I go back to a lot because I love it. I, I love it in spite of its flaws because the things that it does right are just so engaging and so lovable and so watchable. It's probably not quite in my top five. It sometimes hovers around there. I think it's about six or seven for me. And what would your top films be? So my number one is From Rush With Love. Number two is Goldfinger. And they do chop and change a little bit. But as you know, you can see from me being on this this particular episode, I do default toward the spy-ish ones more. So From Rush With Love, then Goldfinger. Then you get to On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Casino Royale. And then the fifth one's probably GoldenEye. Uh, and sometimes a lot the License to Kill comes in there as well. Okay. Well, I am interested. What what would you tell us about? Because License to Kill, I think I've seen more than The Living Daylights, but it's been a while. I know it's all about drugs again. Is it about heroin or cocaine? doesn't oh, matter. It's drugs. You'll, you'll figure it out soon. Yeah. It's white drugs. It doesn't really matter. It's white drugs that American markets really need. But, uh, yeah, so it's a bit more gangster-based than mm. spy-based. But I remember enjoying it. I know it's got uh, a couple of Bond. It's got sort of two Bond girls in it this time, although I don't think he sleeps with the first one, but they've, they've got he, her there. He definitely does. But, you know, you oh. guys can for that next week. Excellent. But what would you, how would you tell us to prepare for, you know, it's such a short journey with Timothy Dalton. Like he just got here and then next week he leaves. He's gone. Yeah. I think between the two Dalton films, you have an almost perfect Bond film. Like some of the things that this film doesn't do well, License to Kill really is effective with. It has a really effective villain and I'll let you guys enjoy that next week and come to that as you will. (laughs) It's probably hangs together more in terms of the overall storytelling but living daylights is probably where it's at for me because it has that beautiful cover of relationship it has all the cold war stuff that's really engaging and timothy dalton i think looks better in this movie as well he looks more like james bond he starts very quickly to look a little bit too not long in the tooth that's not the right i don't think they dress him as well in the second movie right okay so he was i guess 40 when they filmed Mm. the living daylights and then 42 when they did license to kill yeah so that's interesting which means he would have been what 47 ish by the time golden i came around if he was still doing it is is brosnan the same age as him or is he a bit younger or yes so he's about nine years younger i think oh wow okay timothy dalton is born 46 pierce brosnan is 53 so that's 
seven years difference. Yeah. So Dalton is 40 when he does his first one and Pierce Brosnan would have been, if my maths works out, 53, 62, 73, 83, 90. He would have been 40 as well, 41 when he did Goldeneye. Yes, absolutely. So, but, but that means that means um they were considering Brosnan when he was like what thirty two or something. Yeah, I kind of like a forty year old Bond. I don't know why. I think in the <laughs> novels he's supposed to be thirty seven, so I feel like that late thirties. You know, Sean Connery doesn't look thirty three in no, Doctor he doesn't. No. <laughs> so I mean Roger Moore looks 44 when he films starts filming but he's he's cherubic enough to play younger if mm. that makes sense until the very end of course um but <laughs> yeah I think that just Timothy Dalton in this film he's 40 he's mature he's romantic he's a Byronic hero and mm. <laughs> he would go on to play the ultimate Byronic hero Rhett Butler in the little talked about or little remembered Gone with the Wind sequel miniseries called Scarlet. Oh God, I hadn't even heard, I've never even heard of that. Did you ever hear of that? No. <laughs> so I only know of it because at some point I did look at Timothy Dalton's CV and I saw that it was on it. Yeah, and he's quite good as Rhett Butler, although I don't know that he changed his accent. I think he's just got his, you know, beautiful received pronunciation, which makes <laughs> sense because Clark Gable refused to do a southern accent as well. That's true. <laughs> it does sound a bit naff if you're not from the south. Like, it does sound a bit like you're bunging it on. But, yeah, so this was a sequel because there was a, a the estate of Margaret Mitchell in the 80s, I think, late 80s, had someone come in and, write a sequel to Gone with the Wind. And then that book was optioned to be a miniseries. And then the miniseries diverged a fair bit from sort of the second half of the miniseries diverged from the book. But don't worry, I read it and saw the miniseries because I was obsessed with Gone with the Wind. So when you're like, oh, my God, more Gone with the Wind content. But it's very odd. It's the same kind of vibe as if you remember Return to Oz. Yes, I do. Uh, which gave everyone nightmares in the 80s, I think. But it had that same vibe of, oh, it's supposed to be these characters, but it looks really different and the people (laughs) are all different and I don't understand. So it has that same vibe to it where you're like, oh, you're supposed to be Scarlett, Joanne Wally Kilmer, Val Kilmer's wife. Okay. (laughs) It's odd. It's fun, but it's odd. And I guess you just sort of take it as its own thing. But, yes, Timothy Dalton was... Red Butler, and he was fine. Uh, I mean, I can see him as Red Butler. Don't get me wrong; I, I can, I can yeah. definitely see that. But yeah, he had How the strange. <laughs> He's had an interesting t- career, mm. Timothy Dalton. He's played a, a bunch of different things. Yeah, now kind of does um, uh, Doctor Who, and he was in Hot yeah, Well, well mo- most recently he was in uh, uh, Doom Patrol, which is a, a DC Comics uh, t- TV show, which actually isn't too bad if you're into that sort of thing. But um, yeah, like he's definitely that. That's that's where he's at in his uh, career. He's he's doing the he he brings his gravitas to to uh, some very silly uh, stuff, which is good. Yeah. I suppose you do that, don't you? If you're a British actor, you just you're very serious. You do your Shakespearean theatre stuff, and then you just go, yeah, okay, it's all comic books and yeah, and just cash cash some checks, baby. Cash, cash, cash. That does come in sort of trade off James Bond every now and then as well. Was it the Something with the Looney Tunes that he was in, where he was basically playing James Bond again. (laughs) 
He was in Toy Story 3 as Mr. Pricklepants. Does that ring a bell? Yes, that's definitely him. Oh, hey, Stu, given our previous podcast uh, end of last year, he mm. played Lord Azriel in the stage version of His Dark Materials in 2004. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not the only James Bond to play Lord Azriel, of course. No. Yes, no, Daniel Craig in the film. Mm. Mm, interesting crossover. Mm. All right, so we are... At the end of our podcast, we have thoroughly enjoyed Timothy Dalton's debut. It's a breath of fresh air. We will then see his closing film next week. <laughs> it's so nice. It's like he's his opening, he's his it, closing. Goodbye. It, it feels almost shorter than George Lazenby, weirdly, because George Lazenby was just like one film. But I've now set up to like, oh, wow, Dalton. And I do feel that if he had gotten a third film, then they might have – as Chris said, you've got two films that between them make a really good one. If they'd done a third, maybe they would have really locked into something. That's it. Um, Goldeneye, that would have been his Goldfinger, basically. His sort of yeah. everything come together. Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, with that, uh, we say thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank Appreciate you your time and your insights. Uh, Stu, I will see you next week for Licence to Kill. Shall I can't wait. I know, I'm excited too. Oh, I should just point out, hey, nataliebehensky.com, recaps, stuff, <laughs> patreon.com slash girlclumsy, facebook.com slash natalie'sthrone. You can find me. I'm at girlclumsy on Twitter. Stu is at Disco Stu on Twitter. You can tweet us. But with that, I can say that I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. <laughs>